Revelation chapter 1. As I mentioned several weeks ago now, we are going to be studying Revelation 1, or we're studying the book of Revelation. Um, It is a document that I think anyone who teaches it has to approach it with a little bit of fear, and maybe a lot of fear from the standpoint of understanding it and explaining it to other people um, and uh, making sure to get it right. Uh, I want to say up front, Scott was joking about this and I, uh, Scott uh, Femler was joking about this and I wasn't sure that I was going to say anything, but once he joked about it, I decided I would. If you go out and you go hunting and you're with a group of people and you shoot, you shoot multiple animals while you're hunting, you don't come back and say, we shot a lot of deers, okay? You say, we shot a lot of deer. Uh, you don't say, we caught a lot of fishes. You say, you caught a lot of fish. And when we come to this book, we don't say we're studying the book of Revelations. It's the book of Revelation, because there is one revelation that's taking place in this book. It's not the book of Revelations. It is one revelation, and John's going to tell us that from the very beginning. So we're going to be studying the book of Revelation, and I'm going to correct myself right there because I have a very bad habit over a very long time of calling this the book of Revelation. It is not a book. It is a letter, and we'll see that as we read this morning. It is a letter to seven churches. Uh, I, I was thinking this past week that we talk about the books of the Bible and that there's so many books in the Old Testament and there's so many books in the New Testament when actually the New Testament is made up of maybe you've got the four Gospels that are books, Acts is a book, and really the rest of the New Testament are letters and Revelation is one of those letters. So it is the letter of Revelation uh, that John wrote to the seven churches. And you'll see that here. We're going to look at verses 1 to 3 this morning, but we're going to read uh, verses 1 to 8 to just... uh, Honestly, we're going to read verses 1 to 8 because I really like uh, what's in verses 5 to 8. So we'll include those as well for my benefit this morning. So beginning in verse 1 of Revelation 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. That's your title. It's pretty rare that that one of these letters in their time started with a title, but that's your title. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, Grace to you and peace from him who was, who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, 
and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who was to come, the Almighty. This is the word of our Lord. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. G.K. Beale, it's a good name to remember. He's considered the foremost theologian in the evangelical churches today, G.K. Beale. You won't agree with everything he says. He'll sometimes frustrate you with trying to understand what he is saying, but he's worth reading and thinking through. G.K. Beale wrote what many consider to be the best commentary on this letter. And he says that these first three verses contain a general study of the whole letter. What John says in the first three verses are a setup, uh, an introduction to all the rest of the letter and to understanding all the rest of the letter. If we took the time this morning and we went to the end of the letter, and you could do this on your own, go to chapter 22 and look at the end of the letter, and you'll basically hear the comments, the statements in these first three verses repeated again. It's like bookends. John is trying to send the message about what he is about to write, and he finishes the letter by summarizing it again, connecting it back to the very beginning. John is telling us in this letter what God has revealed to Jesus, what Jesus has revealed through an angelic messenger to John. So there's this communication pathway, and, and there's, uh, at the very beginning of this letter, we have this theological conundrum because Jesus is God and equal to God, and Jesus is all-knowing, and God is all-knowing, and yet God reveals something to Jesus, which takes me back to the statement that Jesus made when the disciples asked him, is the kingdom to come now? And Jesus says, that is knowledge of the Father. And he will reveal it when he's ready to. And here we're told by John, God the Father has now revealed to Jesus the Son what is to take place. And he's revealing something to Jesus that is about, some, about Jesus. If you read um, the ESV, it starts out with the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you read uh, the NIV or the New Living Translation, I believe they both say the revelation about Jesus Christ. And there's a lot of debate as to whether this is about Jesus Christ, is it given, is it of Jesus Christ, is it surrounding Jesus Christ, or, or is it just a special revelation that was given to Jesus Christ and the answer is, I don't know. You're going to hear me say that a lot in Revelation. I don't know. 
Uh, one time I taught through this and I said, here's, in different places I'd say, here's five views, you go pick one. I don't know, I haven't figured that out yet. I probably won't do that on a Sunday morning message thing. I'll pretend I know for your sakes. But uh, the, the question to answer, is it simply something that was given to Jesus Christ or is it something that is about Jesus Christ? I'm gonna say yes, that it's both. God the Father gave this to Jesus. God the Father revealed this to Jesus, but it is also, this letter is about Jesus when we read it and we study it. It was given to John through an angel who spoke to John, although there's times when Jesus himself speaks to John. We're gonna see that later in chapter one in one of my most favorite verses in the Bible. Um, Jesus and John have an interaction and Jesus is speaking specifically to John and there's just a very sweet, comforting moment between Jesus and John uh, as, as John sees Jesus in his glory for the first time. But this, that is what this, this letter is about. It's not, a, it's not this deep, dark mystery that we have to somehow spend all of our lives investigating and trying to get all the nuances and, and figure out what's happening. It's not a puzzle to be solved. It's not a timeline for us to establish. We, we so often hear about prophecy conferences. How many of you have actually been to a prophecy conference? I, I have when I was younger, some of you have. Revelation is not something that was given to us so that we can have prophecy conferences and figure out the future. That's not its point. We're not supposed to come to Revelation and try to figure out an airtight timeline of the events that are to come. I have spent my years at a college teaching college students and speaking with college faculty, and I will tell you that there are a lot of different opinions on the letter of Revelation. You get five guys in a room who are academics and you're gonna come up with some really interesting conversations and conclusions. And everybody's sitting looking at each other like, seriously, you think that? Because that, it's just, and then we have these, I thought about doing a whole presentation on millennial views, amillennialism, premillennialism, postmillennialism, dispensationalism, which is the right one? I can tell you they all have holes in them, every single one of them. And I reached a day where I finally came to a point of, I'm not any of them. I grew up as a dispensational premillennialist. I moved to a historic premillennialist. I moved kind of to an amillennialist. I never was a post-millennialist. I think you gotta drink a lot of beer to get to a post-millennial position. That's my personal opinion. But I, I, now I, I'm just like, no. I, the people joke with me and say, you're a pan-millennialist. And you believe that everything's gonna pan out in the end. And that's pretty much what I am. I'm a pan-millennialist. It's all gonna come out in the end and I stopped worrying about timelines. But it's not a puzzle to figure out. It's not a mystery to solve. It is a revelation given by God to Jesus Christ, to, to an angel, to John the apostle, given to us to understand Jesus. That's what revelation is about. If we were to open one of the gospels, Matthew's gospel or 
Mark's Gospel or Luke's Gospel or John. We don't look at those Gospels as a puzzle to figure out. We don't look at them as a mystery to be solved. We look at them as a story that reveals Jesus Christ to us in his humanity. John even tells us that at the end of the Gospel of John, that he's written these things that you may know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You may believe in his name. And they, they, each one of them presents Jesus in a little different way, with a little different nuance to emphasize a specific aspect of his humanity. But we don't sit around trying to put a puzzle together or figure out some mystery from those Gospels. We just take them at face value that they are revealing Jesus to us in his humanity. And when we come to the letter of Revelation, we should see them in the same way. See, See this in the same way. Not, again, as a mystery to solve or a puzzle to figure out, but to understand that for the first time in the whole uh, depth and breadth of the Bible, God is specifically focusing on revealing Jesus to us, not in his humanity, but in his deity. He's not revealing us to him to us as the Son of God in human form or in his human life, but he's revealing to us Jesus Christ in all of his godness, if that's a word. So when John, when we see that in the first chapter, when John hears a voice speaking and he turns around, it's like he can't even describe what he's seeing. But he says, I saw one like the Son of Man. He's seeing this person who looks a little bit like Jesus. And, and, and you remember J, uh, John's nickname? What's John's nickname? Anybody want to throw that out at me? The, the beloved, the one whom Jesus loved. One who was closest to Jesus. That's what that means. He was the one who would lay with his head on Jesus' chest. There was a closeness and a fondness and a bond between them. And when John sees Jesus in all of his glory, in all of his majesty, when he sees him revealed as God, John can only say he looks kind of like the Son of Man. He looks kind of like Jesus, but man. And he falls down as dead in front of Jesus. That's what this letter is about. Jesus, in all of his godliness, godlikeness, his, not even godlikeness, his godness, right? maybe I made up a word this morning. But that's what the letter of Revelation is all about. It's the final revelation of and about Jesus Christ to his brothers and, Jesus, and sisters. I've found over the years that different people have different responses to Revelation, and they are very different responses. I, I would even include myself in some of these responses. Way back when I was a younger kid, and in my early adulthood, 
I would read Revelation, and because I was raised as a dispensationalist, uh, dispensational premillennialist, which meant that Jesus was going to come back in a secret uh, secret rapture and take the church out, and then there were these seven bad years on earth, and then Jesus comes back again um, and uh, sets up his kingdom, and then there's this big rebellion and Jesus then wipes out everybody and everything's happy after that. That is a simple explanation of classic dispensationalism. This was what I was raised in. I I would read this, I would read Revelation, and I really didn't care about the timeline. You know, my biggest concern as a 13-year-old reading Revelation or hearing somebody preach on it was, am I gonna be left behind? You know, am I gonna be one of those people who go through the seven years of tribulation and, boy, I hope I'm saved. I, I just really hope I'm saved. And I, so there were all these moments where it was, God, if I'm not saved, I don't want to go through the tribulation. It wasn't anything about, I want to live holy. I want to live like Jesus. I want to love God. I, I just did not want to be stuck here for those seven years. So anytime anybody talked about it, I, I, just, I was just worried that I was saved. So God, if I'm not saved, I want to be saved because I'm just not sure what's, I do not want to do that. And then you'd hear people pray, you know, the, if you didn't go up in the first rapture, you weren't going to get a second chance. And yet, and so that would kind of scare me. But then of course, Mr. Contrarian had to think differently. And so you'd kind of be, well, there's obviously people coming to know Christ during that time. And so maybe if I'm not saved right now, during those seven years, I'll still get a second chance. So that gave me a little bit of out, you know. So that that was kind of my approach to it. And then as I moved a little bit further into adulthood, it was just like, I don't really understand this book. It just doesn't make letter. It just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Uh, There's just all this stuff happening. And I don't, you know, seriously, are they gonna be riding horses because there's this battle where the blood rises up to their bridles. And, and so are they gonna be riding horses in the future? I mean, we're not really riding horses for war anymore, so why are they gonna be riding horses for war anymore? So it just didn't make a lot of sense. So I just figured it was there, you know, and I quit reading it. And I, I think a lot of Christians approach Revelation from the standpoint of they don't understand it, Leave it to the eggheads. Leave it to the prophecy conference people. And in the meantime, it's all going to be this there. You know, I can, I can do the seven churches, and I can do the first chapter, and beyond that, I'm just kind of stuck. On the flip side of that, though, is that fear thing that I lived with for so long. Terry and I knew a couple, and... Um, the wife started going to a Bible study fellowship. This is no, no, uh, don't take any negative comments about Bible study fellowships from this. Um, but this, the wife started attending a Bible st- study fellowship in the area here, and this was probably eight years ago. I've been here almost nine years, so I would say it's probably about eight years ago. And at that time, the Bible study fellowship that was being held for the women in Cedar Rapids was on Revelation. She got the pants scared off of her. I mean, almost literally. That poor woman was so afraid. 
And she kind of disappeared. And Terry contacted her, asked her, you know, is she okay? What's going on? And she said, I've been, I've been in Bible study fellowship and we're studying Revelation and I am so scared. And this woman professed to be a Christian and eventually just dropped out of church and kind of disappeared off the map because she was so afraid of what she was hearing in the book of Re letter of Re Revelation. You know, it's not spiritually healthy for us to look at a part of Scripture and say, I don't understand it, so therefore I'm not going to mess with it anymore. It's also not spiritually healthy for us to read a part of the Bible as a believer and get so scared to the point that we just quit. Somebody could argue that that person wasn't a believer. I don't know. But neither of those are healthy responses to to God's Word. Instead, we should come to God's Word, we should seek to understand it in the power of the Holy Spirit, and we should seek to see where it reveals Jesus to us. And the beautiful thing about the letter of, of God, of John, written to him through the revelation of God, through Jesus, through an angel, is that it is all about Jesus. Every part of this story is about Jesus. Every part of this revelation is about Jesus in some way or another. And so we need to seek to see him and understand him. I thought this morning that it might be helpful to us as we approach our study to have some historical context of what's going on with this letter when it happened, what was, what was surrounding it, uh, what was going on in John's life, and then to answer a couple of big que picture questions about Revelation, and then in closing, come back to verse 3. I had originally planned on doing a, a section on understanding and interpreting Revelation from, from um, there's five different views as to how you should approach Revelation and understand it. I decided you probably don't care, especially on a Sunday morning. I thought about uh, talking about all the different millennial aspects, premillennial, postmillennial, um, and amillennial. I thought most of you don't care, so I don't want to waste your time this morning. What I will do is put that on paper and email it to you, and if you're one of the two people who care, then you can read that and understand that and uh, find out that with the five views, I'm an eclectic surprise. I just mashed the four views together and there is actually a category called eclectic and that's what I am. Um, and that's how I approach the interpretation. And you'll find out if you read that, that I'm a pan-millennialist, it's all gonna pan out in the end and I don't hold to any th of the three main views. Uh, there's, there's, I would say that that, that premillennialism gets it right in some places, amillennialism gets it right in some places, and actually postmillennialism, and again, you gotta drink a lot of beers to get there, but it, in, somewhere, in some ways, not that I drink a lot of beer, in some places, I think postmillennialism gets it right too. Um, and I have good friends who are all three. When I came here as an elder, um, uh, there actually were all 
I'm not sure that there was a post-millennial, but we had amillennialist elders and we had uh, dispensational premillennial elders and we had classic premillennial elders uh, here when I came. But I'll send that in an email and you can read that if you're having a hard time falling asleep some night. It'll help you with that. So first, the historical context, and real brief with this. John tells us in verse nine, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John gives us the historical context to what he is writing here. The emperor of Rome at this time was a bloodthirsty, corrupt man, and the Christians were under severe persecution. The emperor at that time, which this would have been late 80s to mid 90s, is what most people believe when this was written, unless you're what's called a preterist and you believe everything already happened by 70 AD, that Revelation, everything happened by 70 AD. If you're in that category, I'm sorry. And if you're not in that category, um, then, then you probably would place it somewhere around the late 80s to the mid 90s. And the emperor of that time had killed his relatives. He killed anybody that he saw as a threat to him. He was a paranoid man and extremely corrupt. And the Christians, uh, he demanded emperor worship like most of them did. And he was going after the Christians and other people were going after the Christians and many of them were under very severe persecution. It's commonly believed that John had been exiled to this island as punishment for preaching the gospel, which is pretty much what he says here. This island was off the coast, the western coast of Turkey. It was a penal colony. It was hard labor. Um, and John at this time was probably in his late 80s to early 90s, living on this island, breaking rock every day for his punishment. He says he is a partner in tribulation, but he's also a partner in the kingdom. And he's also a partner in the patient endurance that are in Jesus. And he was there on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So I think about that phrase, and I'll probably talk about it again in the future, but I was talking to a pastor friend of mine, and we were just talking about the cultural situation here in, in the Cedar Rapids area. And we were talking about how the pressure with the cultural issues is putting the people that we shepherd in a difficult place today because their jobs in some cases are, are now moving to a place where it's kind of like you either affirm or your job's gone. And uh, he made an interesting statement to me. He said that there are two kinds of persecution in scripture when it comes to Christians. He said there is persecution for righteousness sake and there is persecution for the name of Jesus. And he said, I think that what we are seeing so far is persecution for righteousness sake. 
And he said, I don't think we've reached the point where we're being persecuted for the name of Jesus. And I thought that was an interesting statement. That because of the way we live, and if we choose to live righteously, and we share what we believe righteousness looks like, we suffer persecution. But we're not in a place yet where we are suffering for the name of Jesus. There are people who immediately associate Jesus' name with religion and immediately are hostile to that. But for the most part, people really don't get upset if you say you're a follower of Jesus. But where John is and the culture that John is living in had reached a point where he was not only on this island as punishment for preaching the gospel, he's on this island for punishment for naming the name of Jesus, for being identified with the name of Jesus. It had reached a level of persecution in this culture where to name the name of Jesus brought persecution. So he's out on this island, he's separated from the community of believers that he loves and pastors. He's an elderly man by any stretch of the imagination in his 80s, possibly even 90, living a very hard life. And on one morning, an angel comes to him and begins to show him things that we still wrestle with today to understand. And I think, what a beautiful, wonderful gift John was given that Lord's Day. When God the Father revealed to Jesus, who revealed to an angel, who revealed to John, the glorified Jesus, in all of his beauty, in all of his majesty, in all of his power. As John writes this letter, as I kind of mentioned earlier, what he writes here is over the top and kind of strange in comparison to his other letters. His other letters are so clear and um, they're, they're nuanced, but they're relatively easy to understand. If, if we want somebody to understand who Jesus is today, we typically give them the Gospel of John because if you read the Gospel of John, it's so easy to understand. And John 3.16 is that touchstone of the gospel that we share with people and that we hold on to. It's so easy to understand that God so loved the world that he gave his only son to die so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. John gives us so many simple ideas and, and, and they're so beautiful as he presents them. But then he writes this letter that has things like, like bowls of wrath and dragons and serpents and locusts and massive wars where millions of people are being killed in the war. And, and we read it and we're not sure what to do with it. And so I think it's good for us to consider this question. And that is, what should I expect from this letter as we read it and study it? What should I expect to learn from this letter? And I would answer that by saying, 
that there are two main themes running throughout Revelation. As we read Revelation, keep these two main themes in mind. The first main theme is the fulfillment of the promises of God regarding his plan to redeem a people for himself from every tribe and tongue and people and nation for his glory and their good over which Jesus will reign as king. That sounded like a lot of words, but to put it simply, God is saving people from across every ethnicity on the face of the earth, and he's bringing them together as a nation, as his people, for his glory and their good, and over which Jesus will one day reign physically. That is one of the main themes running through Revelation. And the second big theme that is running through Revelation is the fulfillment of the promises of God to destroy Satan, to destroy everything that is evil, to eradicate sin from his creation, and to judge his enemies. That's the second big theme. The first theme is God redeeming people and Jesus will reign over them. The second big theme is the destruction of Satan, the destruction of evil, the eradication of sin, justice being brought, and the judgment of his enemies. Those are two parallel themes. They're interwoven together, running through this letter. And if we see those two big themes centered in Jesus, Revelation is going to be largely easy to understand and, and, uh, and to learn from. I think it's possible to argue that all of the prophecies in the Old Testament are like rivers flowing into a massive stream that ultimately empties itself into Revelation. Our eastern border of Iowa is, uh, we find the Mississippi River. I don't know how many of you have ever traveled up to Minnesota to see where the Mississippi River starts, but it has a pretty um, toned down start. There's, there is the promise of something up there. If you know the rest of the Mississippi River, there is the promise of something up there that's massive and magnificent. But it's, it's pretty, pretty mild in comparison. But it flows, and as it flows south, all these rivers feed into it, and the Mississippi gets bigger and bigger and more obvious. And if you're driving east and you go over a big river, the question that probably goes through your mind, is this the Mississippi River? Because you know about it and you know how huge it is. That river keeps going south until it flows into a delta. And it's massive down at the bottom of the uh, United States of America. And then it flows out into that ocean. That is a good way to see, these, to see the, the letter of Revelation. That all those prophecies from the very first one given to Eve, that she will bear, will have an offspring and he will crush the serpent's head and the serpent will bruise his heel. That, that very beginning that seems so small and mild just begins to fan out and rivers of prophecy feed into it until we come to the New Testament where it's being fulfilled and that, that stream of prophecy empties, empties itself into 
revelation. And we see it all come together and we see it all fulfilled. We should continually remind ourselves as we study this letter that God is faithful to all of his promises and that he is bringing us to dwell with him. And there's a second question that I think is good for each of us to consider is, how should I respond? Not only what I should learn from this letter, but how should I respond? I, I've come to the conclusion that many people either avoid revelation or they find this weird satisfaction of obsessing over it to figure out the future. Continually trying to link it to current events. Ah, Putin is the Antichrist. Ha ha I got that one down now. And, and Russia is Gog and China is Magog. Yeah, I got that. And the beast, who is the beast? Obama. Everybody knows that Obama's the beast. Seriously, I heard that. I heard that stuff. When I was a kid, it wasn't Putin. It was, ah, oh, what was his name? Gorbachev, and then before him was Brezhnev. They were, they were the Antichrist. They were the bad guys. When I was at a particular Christian college, the Pope was the Antichrist. And if you go back in history, for, for a long period of time, there were those who believed that the Pope was the Antichrist. And, and you know, then you get these people who, it's gonna happen on such and such a day, the rapture is gonna happen. And people actually go up on mountains and wait and find out, oh, it wasn't the right date. We made a mistake. Trust us, we're right. We just didn't figure this little bit into it and therefore it's this date. It isn't good to avoid it. It isn't intended for us to obsess over it. How should we respond to it? Either one of those responses lead us away from what God intended here. So I would suggest to you, and personally, I would believe that if you or me, I am one of God's redeemed people through faith in Jesus, as you study this letter, your response should be to be encouraged by God's faithfulness and mercy in light of his judgment. You know, as you read this letter, there's, there's that verse in the Old Testament that likes to get quoted a lot uh, by Christians and non-Christians. Let justice rain down. Heard that verse? Let, let, let justice rain down. And, and what we see in Revelation is justice raining down. Massive hailstorms. Massive fireballs. Plagues that just wipe people out. When you ask for justice to rain down, you might want to think about what you're asking for and, and understand what you're asking for in Revelation. And as we see a holy God through His Holy Son execute justice and let justice just rain down on the population of the world, we shouldn't just end up horrified, and we definitely shouldn't end up going, <laughs> they're getting what they deserved. Christians should never come from a perspective of they're getting what they deserved. Because it's what we deserved. As you read Revelation and you see all of that 
unfold and you see God's righteousness and justice coming to an unjust human being. Immerse yourself in the thought of his goodness and his kindness and his mercy and the forgiveness that you've experienced. Never have a they got what was coming moment in Revelation. Have lots of moments of God has been so good to me as you read through this letter. You should also be comforted that God is bringing you to a time and place where you will enjoy his person and his presence forever. When John speaks in verse 9 about being your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, I got to believe he just loves this letter because of what is in the future. And I got to believe that he finds comfort that God is bringing him to what the psalmist referred to as an abundant place. And finally, it seems good to me to respond in faithful love and obedience to Jesus, to recognize the forgiveness, to recognize the mercy, to recognize the goodness, to bask in the reality of eternity in God's presence where I can see him, not just know, but see him and feel him and enjoy him without sin. And from that vantage point and from that reality and from what I experience with Jesus right now, it seems good to respond in faithful love and obedience to Jesus. To say, I want, I want more in me of obedience to him because of what he's done for me. We are waiting for our exalted king to come and rule in fullness. I would argue that that kingdom has already begun. That kingdom has already broken through in this world. We call it inaugurated. The inauguration of Jesus' kingdom has already come. We are waiting for that final day when all of his enemies are destroyed and sin is eradicated and the final curtain falls on human history in its sin-affected phase and the curtain rises on the future of human history without sin in the fullness of the presence of God. That is when we will enjoy ultimate justice, hope, peace, and prosperity. But on the other hand, those are all ways to respond if you are a child of God, but if you have chosen not to accept the person and work of Christ. I think that Revelation speaks to you in a different way. If you are not one who is trusting in the finished work of Christ for your sin, you should be aware of the faithfulness and righteousness of God to judge sin and those who love it. You either love Jesus and love, his, love God or you love sin. There's no gray area. 
The more you love Jesus, the more you will despise sin. The more you understand what Jesus has done for you, the less you're going to want sin. And when it comes to being a person who has found forgiveness of sin in Jesus, we read Revelation through the lens of the fulfillment of God's faithfulness and mercy. And if we do not know Jesus as our Savior, we have to watch it through the lens of what is going to happen to those who do not know Jesus. And I would say this as clearly as I possibly can. If you are here this morning or you're listening to this message in some way and you have not trusted in Jesus for salvation, you should be extremely afraid of the awful judgment that awaits you. You should be extremely afraid of the eternal sense of separation from God that you will someday experience. When you read Revelation and you hear of all those judgments and those plagues and those hailstones and those fireballs and you read about the demons that will crawl across the face of the earth devouring people in front of them, it should scare the pants off you and drive you to a loving, merciful God who gave his son so that you would never have to experience that. Finally, you should respond to this letter in repentance of your sin and trust in the finished work of Jesus before it is too late. In closing, I'd like us to consider verse 3. This is just a great statement. And it is what we will be doing as we go through this letter. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. That's me. That's, <laughs> I, I, every time I read that, I think what an easy way to be blessed to stand up here and get paid to read this letter aloud. It sounds so simple. It sounds weird. But John says there is blessing for the one who reads this letter aloud. Some people even take that so far as if you are alone, you will find blessing in reading this letter aloud. And the reason that there's blessing in it for the reader is because the Christ to an angel, to John. And hearing what God has said. And hearing what God has shown. And hearing what is yet to be. So for me, I love this because I get to do this with you on Sunday mornings. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy but also blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. The ultimate goal of reading this aloud is to produce in individuals not only the ability to hear it, but to keep it. I lament that teaching in a college 
and teaching the Bible in a college is always geared towards learning knowledge. As a Bible college teacher, and as one who did that for 12 of 16 years that he was at a college, I would every day have Bible classes that the students would come to, and they took notes because they wanted to get a good grade. That was their goal. Because that's how college, that's how our education process is structured. You get a good grade. And so all it became about for them, it wasn't about learning and evaluating and and applying, it was about an A or a B or a C or maybe a D just to get by. How much do I have to do to get by? I gotta pass this class. And I used to say to my students, I, I, had, I taught all the students their sophomore year, their junior year, and their senior year. So I had three times at least that I taught all the students at the college. And I would teach them in this one class, 1 Corinthians, in their sophomore year. I had three sections of it. And the thing I would say every year in that first class that they had with me is knowledge puffs up. And I would say to them, you have come here to a Christian college. Most of you are wanting to go into Christian education or or some kind of vocational ministry. And so you have come here to get certified with a degree saying that you are ready to do that. And the sad reality is that most of you are going to go out of here more arrogant than how you came in here. Because knowledge puffs up. And you're going to pay tens of thousands of dollars to be less useful in the ministry than you were when you came here. And I think it's interesting that John says to us here, blessed are those who hear and who keep. Do not approach Revelation with the idea of how can I learn more and this is going to be so cool and let's have a cool prophecy conference. Hear it. Learn it. Retain it. And then ask yourself, where am I in relation to this? And go back to that question of how should I respond to this? Because God wants to use this revelation, this revelation of His Son, this revelation about His Son to transform you, to cause you to rejoice, to cause you to lament, to cause you to celebrate the future, and to cause you to evaluate in the present of who you are and your relationship with Jesus. Blessed is the one who reads it. What privilege. Blessed is the one who hears it and keeps it. Because the time is near. You say, Jesus is coming back soon? I sure hope so. I really do. But even if he doesn't come back in the next 20 years, life is short. It's a vapor. The time is near that you're going to stand 
before God. Love him and pursue him and become like Jesus. Revelation is a launching pad for us. This is, this is we, we are in the place of ultimate blessing as we read and hear because it is through that work that we become like Jesus. So I would encourage you on this journey through this letter to focus on how Jesus was revealed and to commit yourself to living in a way that honors him, not because your behavioral modification techniques work, but because Jesus is changing you from the inside out. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that you care about us in even the slightest way. As we see the mountains and we see the forests and we see the oceans and we're amazed by the diversity and the immensity of it, your creation. And we start to think that we're pretty important big stuff in this whole universe, suddenly we realize that we live on a speck of dust in a universe that cannot be fully measured. And it stuns me that you even care about us. What is man that you are aware of him, that you care for him, that you would send your one and only son to die for him. And we raise our puny little fists at you. And we get so angry with you at times because we feel like you're not listening to us or you're not doing what we want us to. And it's like, it's like the amoeba in the pond if he had a fist raising it against us. God, I'm thankful for your word and I'm thankful for, the, for this letter because when we hear of multitudes from every tribe and tongue and nation and people gathering around the throne to sing hallelujah to the king, it puts the megachurches in a place where they're like ants. And all the pride that we hold because of our numbers or our success just falls away when we realize how great and awesome and powerful you are. And it causes us to wonder why you care. Father, I thank you that this little voice will one day be part of that massive multitude singing hallelujah to the Lamb. And I think, thank you that this wrecked body will one day be resurrected from the grave in power and glory. And I will stand on a new heaven and a new earth 
and hear the voice from the throne that declares that you dwell with man forever. God, I look forward to that. Pray that you will teach us from your word. Again, that the Holy Spirit would in power teach us and in his power transform us into the image of Jesus. In your son's name, amen.